I think about the attention and the power we as a people tend to give to physical appearance. And I think about the lives that have been forever affected by that attention, whether negative or positive, we have been taught to judge a book by its cover. Hello everyone, I'm Pamela Brewer welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest has spent her lifetime in one way or another dealing with the internal and external repercussions of our society's preoccupation with appearance. I'm pleased to welcome Kristen Bartzokas, author of Diary of a Beautiful Disaster. Kristen, welcome to Mind Talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, Kristen, you were born with something called Treacher-Collins syndrome. Can you explain to us what that is? Absolutely. Um, so it is a facial difference where the bones in the face don't fully form or, de- uh, or develop properly. Um, so my cheekbones were essentially missing. I didn't really have a chin or jaw. Um, it was very recessed, so it was pushed back. Um, if my voice sounds a little nasally, it's because my nasal passage is narrow. Um, also with Creature Collins, we have very uh, tiny ears. They're malformed and misshapen, and a lot of us require hearing aids to be able to hear. So those are just some of the um, standard symptoms that people may see with Treacher Collins. All right, and, and you're clearly saying they're just some of the standard symptoms. So yes. that lets us know that there can be more, there can be less, there certainly can be others that you have not identified. So tell us from, a, you know, as you heard me say uh, just a few moments ago, we're living in a world where people put so much emphasis on how things look um, and don't often go beyond what things look like from the outside, whether it's a person, food, it doesn't matter. We we tend not to go very far. So how did you deal with that growing up? What kind of um, guidance did your parents offer you? Um, well, when I was really young, I actually did not know that I had any kind of difference. It just didn't occur to me. So when I was, um, you know, two or three, I would go up to random kids on the playground and just not have any any notion that I was any different. Um, And it wasn't until I got a little older that I started to realize that my facial features were different, that kids my age didn't go to um, have surgeries or go see doctors. They didn't wear hearing aids. Um, And I chose to not let those, all those negative things in my life define who I was, Um, but at the same time, and that was due in part to my parents because they really never let on that I had anything wrong with me, Um, but at the same time, I did notice everyone staring at me, especially children, when I was out in public and and I was around people that didn't know me, Um, children and sometimes adults too, you know, they would stare, they would point, and they made it very clear that I was unusual looking. I was something that they had never seen before. Um, And over time, that 
really built up my insecurities. Just, as you can imagine, anytime you're looked at as an oddity, um, it does kind of tug at your heart a little bit and make you feel like something is wrong with you. Um, So living in a world where we do put a lot of emphasis on perfection and beauty and attractiveness, my, as I aged, my treacher column syndrome definitely had an impact on me. Um, and it took me a long time to, to get over that hump. You're saying that as a little one, your parents, they, they didn't tell you that there was anything different uh, about you versus other things. And, and so my guess is that they wanted to raise you in a way that that was not your focus. On the other hand, though, you know, and hindsight is always brilliant, uh, would it have been useful for you, do you think, if your parents had started to talk to you earlier about how you were different from some other children? I don't think so, because at the age um, when I was really young, it wasn't really... I wouldn't have been able to grasp it okay. as much, um, but I was probably around three years old, three or four years old, when I sat in front of the mirror and I was playing with my mom's makeup, and she was sitting next to me, and I noticed how my eye shape was different than hers and that I didn't have cheekbones. So when I started to notice these things, that's when she explained more in, in terms that I couldn't understand at the time. Okay. Um, so I, I do feel like they, they did the right thing for me, which could be completely different for somebody else. You talked about um, surgeries, and you certainly went through many surgeries um, f- from very early on. What's your? What can you say to those who are listening about um, what children might need uh, when they're going through surgery f- for anything? Um, I think that they need support, um, especially if it's their first surgery. The child isn't really going to know what to expect, and so um, they may they may not be as afraid as um, as somebody who's gone through numerous surgeries and kind of knows the drill um, just because they don't know they don't they don't know what to fear if they've never never come in co- into contact with it before um, but I definitely think support from family members from friends um, and also for those people to show strength um, for the child going in for surgery, because I know for me, I ended up adopting that mentality of just fortitude and strength because I saw all of the people surrounding me staying strong for me um, every time I went into a surgery. So I think that is important. And I also think that afterwards, um, when the child comes out of the surgery to... Be attentive, but then also if you're, if it's family or friends, just come over to visit and to sit and don't expect that the child is going to be able to bounce right back and do exa- everything that they had done prior to the surgery. Um, 
but still come over and if it's to watch TV, watch a movie, um, just still include the child. I think that's very important. You know, that, that I think that's a, a, a very valuable observation that you've made because a lot of, uh, on, on both ends, because on the one hand you're saying that the child who's not been through a surgery or a medical procedure actually may not know to be scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they don't know what's going on, so they don't have a yeah. frame of reference, whereas a child who's been through it before really has a sense of what could be coming. And and that's an interesting, I think, perspective that I, I think adults may not really think about. So thank you for that. That's, I think that was really important for people to, to be clear about. And then the other piece of, you know, just spending time with the child mm-hmm. and not expecting that the child should do or be in any particular way is also, I think, critically important. So many times we as adults um, forget that children are really just children. They're not short adults. They're children. Exactly. And everybody heals differently and bounces back from surgeries differently. So even if you have two children in your family who who are undergoing the exact same procedure, they are not going to have the exact same outcome after the surgery. They may just adapt to life right after, a little bit differently. Makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Talking with Kristen Bartsokas, who is the author of Diary of a Beautiful Disaster. My name is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We will be back in just a moment. Kristen, the um, the experience of Treacher Collins syndrome, as I understand it, affects approximately one in fifty thousand people. Um, so it actually is more. I mean, it is a rare genetic disorder, true, but it actually affects more people than we might just as a, a population be aware of. Yes, that's correct. Because the um, it varies on a spectrum, so you can have people who r- hardly have any noticeable um, facial difference. They may just have really flat cheekbones, yet that might be um, caused by the genetic a mutation for Treacher Collins, or if you have it to the other opposite end of the spectrum, um, it's a lot worse, a lot more severe, and that one is definitely, you obviously notice that one. And one of the points that you uh, make in a be- Diary of a Beautiful Disaster is that uh, the, uh, the the syndrome does not affect mental development, it does not contribute to a shortened life experience, uh, life expectancy, but it certainly does speak to a challenging, challenging, sometimes exhausting path of multiple surgical procedures. How many procedures would you say you've had to date? Um, So I have, I've had 10 
Um, and <laughs> I have met multiple people with Treacher Column Syndrome, and so sometimes I have to say I've only had 10 because that's so few compared to some of the other people who have had surgeries. That's a lot to grasp. You've only, mm-hmm. only had <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you, you, you talked about um, growing up, believing that everything happens for a reason, and then you, your view of life began to change, and, and you describe yourself as being more cynical and more realistic. That's an interesting way to describe the shift in your perspective. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I guess because I had always been told that everything happens for a reason, that's just something that was always implanted into my brain um, by just society, I think, not just my parents, my schooling, but I just always heard that. And then I don't, I, I can't tell you why my mindset shifted, um, but I realized that this mine was a complete genetic mutation. It was random. It, my syndrome does not run in my family. It could happen to anyone, um, and it just so happened to me. Um, I cannot. I can't really tell you why that shifted. Nothing. No one particular thing happened that made me think that. Um, I think it's just going through life that I didn't need to cling to that notion that everything happens for a reason Um, because, in part, I also then started to believe that I controlled what happened in my life. I controlled – I may not have been able to control the negative things in my life, like my syndrome, but I could control how I reacted to them. So in that essence, I was in charge of my own life. So from that perspective, it sounds like it actually freed you up to live in a different way. Yes, yes, I believe that. And, I, and you know, some people still do say that everything happens for a reason, and that, you know, that, that's their perspective, and that's absolutely fine. It was just not the perspective that, that at some point worked for you. Correct, correct. I needed to know that even if, even if this was supposed to happen to me, that I wasn't allowing it to control my life. There was an experience that you talked about at the Special Olympics. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So I was in high school, I believe, and um, we had to do community service hours. So I was so excited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to volunteer at the Special Olympics. And... Remember, I, like, when I, I don't look in the mirror. I'm not looking at myself all the time. So I forget what I look like. I forget that I look any different than anybody else. Um, I, I do look in the mirror, but not, you know, I'm not looking at it all the time. And so I went, my grandparents drove me to the Special Olympics, and I was so excited, and I get there to check in, and the the volunteer who was checking me and says, oh, you're here to participate. And I go, what? No, I'm here to volunteer. And just automatically, even though that wasn't done maliciously, mm-hmm. um, she had no idea. Just because I came, I showed up and I looked different, it was presumed that I was there to participate. Um, and 
as you mentioned earlier, there was nothing, like, mentally, cognitively, I was fine. And so, to me, you know, I, I didn't, no, I wasn't there to participate. I'm just there to volunteer. And so that really, it it hurt me, and it, it made me, in that moment, like, just want to hide because um, I felt like I needed to prove something to people that mm-hmm. my appearance didn't, it didn't define me. And so I was standing there watching them play basketball, and I just felt like I couldn't participate fully in the volunteer experience just because I had had that negative um, conversation just minutes before. And then from that basketball, I still had to go to the, another aspect of the Special Olympics, which was the gymnastics. And so we drove to the gym, um, and there were three girls there, and I believe two other girls volunteering. And so the girls we were the girls who were volunteering, uh, we just started talking, and and um, then I just got up because I was a gymnast. I got up and I just started to to play on the equipment and they were just amazed because I had so much skill and potential and they just didn't realize that somebody who looked different could be that skilled. You know, it it just speaks in so many ways to the the narrow way in which I think just we as a society tend to view not only ourselves very often but the world aw- around us. You absolutely have had successes as a gymnast and there was a time when I was struck by this this description um, of your response as you wrote in a diary of a beautiful disaster you scored a perfect 10 on a floor exercise routine you were perfect the crowd roared and you just kind of stood there Yes. (laughs) It's something I always knew I could do. And as a gymnast, that perfection is something that we all strive for. Um, But, I mean, I had worked my butt off to get to that place. So I knew I could do it. And so it just didn't faze me that I actually hit perfection. It just didn't faze me. I I knew I could do it. You you also talk about your discomfort um, over time with showing people the vulnerability uh, of, of Kristen, uh, you know, a vulnerability that we all have in different ways. A- as we talk today, what's your thought about allowing yourself to be seen as you are, as you emotionally are? Well, and I think um, actually writing this book and having it come out and speaking with um, schools and different groups, it has actually helped me. So I feel like now I am more open to showing my vulnerability. Um, So this book has actually been a huge blessing because I am, I'm not necessarily more emotional. Um, That's just my my personality. Um, But I am willing to just, be raw and be honest with people. And, you know, that that's such a freeing perspective when you don't have to walk around in your view keeping everything to yourself. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that I realized was that there are so many people out there who feel the same way that I do or are going through the same things that I went through. And so by me being able to vocalize my feelings, it's helping them. Speaking of uh, really paying attention to your feelings uh, and and being willing to share them more, I think with yourself as well as with other people, mm-hmm. you say um, at, at one point in um, your book that you've recently accepted, and I'm going to quote you, I've more recently accepted my single status and cherished the independence it provides me. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, So I have not um, ever dated anyone. And for the longest time, especially, you know, in high school, when everybody's kind of starting with dating, it was very difficult for me because I had some of my my biggest, most traumatic surgeries during that time. And so I never felt like anybody was going to want to date me then. I had these metal spokes uh, protruding from my jaw area. And so to me at that age, being a 15, 16-year-old, I kind of felt like I was a robot. At You know, I had this metal in me, and nobody was going to love me. And so just having those experiences at that pivotal age, it really didn't help me when it came to my willingness to date um, as I was getting older because I always kind of felt like that 16-year-old girl, always kind of like stuck in that as that 16-year-old girl. Um, And I realized, especially after, like in the process of writing this book, that, you know, it was my own fault that I had not dated um, because I didn't make an effort. And if I couldn't, you know, I had to love myself fully and completely um, with my treacher column syndrome as is before anybody else could do that. And so now I am there, but I love my independence <laughs> and I love being able to, you know, if I feel like waking up at 3 in the morning and going for a run, I can do that, and I'm not bothering anybody. If I feel like watching, you know, cheesy Hallmark movies, I can do that, and nobody's going to be bothered. I'm not going um, to tell Hallmark you said that. I know. Even, <laughs> even though I might agree watched, a little bit. Exactly. Kristen, exactly. we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like to continue hearing more about what your life is like today. Sure. Kristen, uh, talk. 
talk more to us about where you are today emotionally um, and just what's going on in your world today. And, and I think we're pretty clear that the single life is working <laughs> for you in a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, you know, it's one of those things that I just refuse to settle. Um, I'm 35 years old, and I'm comfortable the way I am, and so it's going to take a, a very special person to change that. So I'm not opposed to it, but I'm just I'm comfortable living as I am. Um, but, you know, at this age, I will say one of the things that I have learned, especially recently, is that there are multiple forms of confidence. And when I was growing up, I was confident, obviously, in my abilities, um, you know, gymnastics gave me that confidence to be able to, um, in, in everything that I did, I knew I could do anything. I was confident in who I was as a person. Um, I had a loving heart. I um, was just a good person all around. But it wasn't until recently that I found my confidence in my looks and my appearance and my in my syndrome. And so... Today, I am 100% fully confident, um, and I think that is important. I think we all need to understand that level of confidence and strive towards it. And when we get there, it just makes us so much happier and so much um, better inside. Absolutely. And, And one of the points that you make, um, is that you you recognize that beauty begins in the heart. Yes, absolutely. And when you say that it begins in the heart, you add to that uh, the the some of the reasons that you know from the inside out that you are beautiful and you make it very clear that it has nothing to do with your looks. And, and I got to tell you, uh, there's so much that would be different about the people who we are if we recognize that beauty begins on the inside. Some of the things that you identify as reasons that you know that you are beautiful are your compassion, your patience. Tell us a little bit more about the things that you've identified within yourself. Um. Well, yes, definitely my compassion, um, because I can, you know, if, if I, I can just feel for someone. If I see someone who is struggling in any way, um, being different, I feel for them, and I will help them in any way that I possibly can. Um, my um, patience, you know, I grew up with my grandparents, and so to me, especially as we age, and like I watched my grandparents age, I think patience is something that is absolutely important for all of us, um, because in, in that aspect of it, we all age. We are all going to go through it. Um, yeah, so beauty is so many other things than just physical appearance. Um, it's how we see the world. It's how we react to the world and interact with the people in it, um, one of the things that my condition has taught me is just to love everyone. We are all 
equals, and that is, you know, I can't stress that enough. It doesn't matter what we look like, what color our skin is, what nationality we are. We are all equals, and I think that is a beautiful thing to uh, to recognize within ourselves. Absolutely, and again, would make the world such a different place. Kristen Bartzok is author of Diary of a Beautiful Disaster. Is there a website for the book? Um, there is. You can actually um, go to, if you can, I'll spell it out for you. Um, you can go to kristenbartzokis.com. So that's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-B-A-R-T-Z-O-K-I-S.com. And you can um, buy the book there. You can also find it on Amazon or uh, through my publisher, Kai Cam Projects. Terrific. And Kai Cam Projects has certainly done some wonderful books, and certainly you add to their category, I would say, of amazing books that introduce us to amazing people. Thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us today here on Mind Talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. I am delighted. And, folks, thank you for joining me today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or other professional. Remember that you can always listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K. Dot O-R-G. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. You can email me directly by go- sending an email to Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at MindTalk. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. <laughs>